Similar to our founder, Jimmy McManus comes from humble and hungry roots. He spent majority of his childhood serving on his family farm. His love for fishing commenced in the 70s as he quickly worked his way up to a licensed captain. During his active fishing career, he operated various vessels in the crab, trawl, and salmon fisheries, targeting anything that swam or crawled. He later managed all of Trident's fishing vessels and was instrumental in helping create and steer the largest cooperative of wild Alaska pollock and cod shoreside fishing vessels in the Bering Sea. He is a jack-of-all-trades and one of the Trident cornerstones. How can Jimmy's experience, tribal knowledge, and growth help you? Listen in and find out. Chapter 7. Jimmy McManus. Just get her done. Not far from Chuck Bundren's corner office on the third floor of Trident headquarters is an office occupied by Jim McManus. In addition to shadowing the boss and being on hand for virtually every community event in Ballard, Jim coordinates the fleet of trawl catcher vessels that harvest cod and pollock for the Trident plants in Akatan and Sandpoint. A former vessel captain and veteran of the crab and groundfish fisheries, McManus was a professional diesel mechanic who typifies what Chuck Bundrant means when he says, I've been blessed with good people. McManus is another one of the Trident Cornerstones who started his career at the bottom of the ladder, and it's easy to visualize him with a fish in one hand and a wrench in the other. McManus had his own experience with Pilot House Windows, and the story leading up to that event is just as remarkable. Jimmy grew up as a Ballard boy, but with a last name like McManus, he had to work his way into the neighborhood's Norwegian culture. I started fishing in the mid-70s after working for Caterpillar right after graduating from Ballard High School. I had a couple of friends there who were fishing, Kevin Caldestad and Lance Farr, who were a year older. I loved working with my hands, and I wanted to be a mechanic. I did a lot of work on my own cars and motorcycles. When I was still in high school, I was working at Northland Marine Lines, which was at the same location that our old yard is now. My job there was to clean up the yard and to wash and keep the forklifts clean. I bet I hand swept that yard at least a dozen times from one end to the other. I worked up to changing oil in the forklifts because it was a union yard and I was just a kid. The unions didn't like it too much, but I would help the welders out and I would do work on the barges. While that was going on, the Caterpillar guys would come in and work on the gensets that we had on the barge. It was a self-contained power supply system they would take with them on the barge to Alaska. It would power the operation to unload the barge and keep reefer vans cool. So the Caterpillar guys would come to repair them and I told my foreman, I'd like to do that. I think I'd like to be a Caterpillar mechanic. Can you help me? My foreman helped me get on with NC Marine right there in Lake Union. I really enjoyed the work. I really worked hard and I'd actually run between the boats and the shop. Ironically, what helped me advance my career was an accident. I was on my way to work on my 89th day. I remember that because it was my review day to see if they were gonna hang on to me, and I was running a little bit late. I was coming down Shoal Avenue 
almost right next to the entrance where Trident is today. There was a line of cars there, and they were all stopped. I had a Kawasaki 750, the fastest motorcycle at the time, and I was 17. I went out to pass those cars, and I did it very quickly. I got up to the front car, and I figured out why they were all stopped. He was turning left. I hit him really hard. I flew over him, and I hit a car with my body in the parking lot. I caught it in the bumper, and the hood ornament hit me in the chest. By all rights, I should have been dead. The Ballard Hospital was just a couple blocks away, and there were surgeons there getting ready to operate on somebody. It was a scheduled surgery, but they canceled that and took me in. They pulled my spleen out. I had a fractured femur. That was before they pinned your femur, so I spent the next three months in the hospital bed in traction and another six or seven weeks in a body cast, and another two weeks in a leg cast. That was a lot of time to think, and it did a lot for me. It toned me down in some respects. I woke up the next morning, and there were three of my cohorts at NC, plus the foreman. And he patted me on the arm and said, Don't worry about your job. We've got you covered. When you get back in shape, you can go back to work. That really meant a lot to me. So during the time I was in the hospital... I asked for the Caterpillar manuals so I could study them. The guys from the shop would rotate the manuals through and I would study them from front to back. I had all the time in the world. I actually memorized the sequence of things. When I got out of the hospital, I was in a body cast. But Caterpillar had started a new program where they would go around to dealers with Caterpillar personnel and they would train the mechanics. The students would usually be journeymen or comparable level and they would put them through a special school on various types of engines. I heard about that and asked if I could go. They said, how are you going to attend class in a body cast? And I said, just let me in the door. Several people jumped in to help. My parents would give me a ride down to NC in the morning. I had to lie down in the back of their station wagon. But the class wasn't there at NC on Lake Union. It was in Tukwila. So another guy who was going to the class folded down the front seat of his car so I could lie horizontal to get there. And they set up a table for me in the back. So I laid on a table all day. As it turns out, I went through a special class to learn how to overhaul the same engines that were installed on the Billiken. I learned how to do everything, A to Z. Gensets, a little bit on reduction gears, small engines for gill netters, I went through an intensive class on those too. Then as I was healing, they came out with a process to test the new fuel injection system on their engines. It was called the Fuel Injection System Test Bench. I was fortunate enough to be there when that was going on, so I was already schooled in it when NC purchased one. So when I got off my crutches, they let me work on that test bench, and I traveled up and down the coast as their fuel systems guy I also overhauled the big bore engines. Of course, my buddies like Kevin and Lance were coming into NC with their dads. They'd be driving new cars, and they'd say, you need to go fishing, Jim. You need to go fishing. This was around 1975, and when Chuck came in with the Billiken, that was the pride of the fleet. Everybody talked about it and how good it was doing. Ironically, at about that time, Doug Nelson was at NC2, and he was my foreman. 
I had no idea that he and Chuck were brothers-in-law, but that was my first introduction to Chuck and the Billiken. Although it wasn't what you'd call a memory-building introduction, it was just awareness that there was a pretty special guy with a pretty special boat out there. So another year goes by, and I overhaul an engine on a crab boat, the American Beauty. Leif Lachlingholm, one of the owners, was going to be marginally late for the crab fishery, so I worked long hours and ran between the boat and the shop. I managed to overhaul the engine in about four days, top to bottom, and it ran like a top. So he told me, there's a lot of opportunity in Alaska. You need to go fishing. I told him I loved my job at NC, but I'd think about it. He said, I wish you would. He went north and right away his engineer quit. His partner, Howard Carlo, came down to the shop. By this time, my foreman was a guy named Art Olson and he'd been a fisherman out of Kodiak. Well, he looked at me and looked at Howard and he knew what was going on. He said, well, I can tell. I can't hold you back. That's a good opportunity. You have my blessing. It was a great boat, and they offered me more than what I'd honestly say I was worth. I was a very green fisherman, but I could keep the boat running, and Leif thought there was value in that. Actually, that caused a lot of issues with the crew. It was an all-Norwegian crew. They spoke Norwegian on the boat. It seemed kind of funny they called it the American Beauty. But I went to Leif and said, If there's so many issues with the crew, I'll just take less and share it with those guys. And that really smoothed things out. We fished hard. The first season, obviously, is the hardest. You don't know what to make of it. But after you get into the routine and the system, it becomes like family and it gels. Being an engineer on a crab boat, unless you're on a processor, is something that you do in addition to your deck job. You have to do everything the deck crew is doing and your own job too. You have to keep everything running and well-maintained, keep a sharp eye on things, and be able to repair them as needed. We were up there probably nine months a year, grinding it out. We had a lot of things happen in that three-year window on that boat that would salt you. One of the events that salted Jim McManus, literally and figuratively, occurred during the king crab season of 1978. The Bering Sea king crab resource was strong that year, and so were the prices. The fleet harvested 100 million pounds of king crab at a price of more than $1 a pound. Marco's shipyard in Seattle was cranking out a new 123-foot king crabber every six weeks, and a savvy skipper could pay it off in two years. There was no limited entry, and the waterfront was crawling with entrepreneurs, young and old, looking to get in on the gold rush. The experienced yards Marco, Martin Nolich, Hanson, Dakota Creek, Pacific Fishermen, Nichols Brothers, and Union Bay were booked solid with orders, and eager buyers were desperate to sign contracts and get boats on the water as fast as possible. A few cagey characters were smart enough to place a vessel order, get it on the schedule, and then scalp their unbuilt crabber like a ticket to a rock concert or a Super Bowl game. One group of investors sold its place in line at Marco for $100,000. Other buyers looking for deals pestered boat brokers, poured over marine classifieds, and toured marinas looking for something cheap enough and big enough 
to convert to a king crabber. Some found steel-hulled gulf shrimpers with sharp bows shaped like can openers. Others enlisted surplus military scows and yard oilers. Others found large aft-deck wooden saners from the tuna and sardine fisheries off California. Many of the conversions were nightmares of naval architecture, totally ill-suited to the task of packing scores of steel crab pots weighing anywhere from 600 to 700 pounds apiece. And in the early days, before federal fishing vessel safety legislation, there were no requirements for life rafts or survival suits. Vessels needed to carry only a life jacket for each crewman and the appropriate number of fire extinguishers. It was a man's world. A boatload of king crab could be worth more than a quarter of a million dollars. So the tactic was to turn and burn the gear as fast as it could go and squeeze in as many traps as possible before fishing game closed the season. But it was a dangerously accelerating spiral. The faster the fleet fished, the sooner the quota was taken and the sooner the season ended. As openings grew progressively shorter, skippers worked their crews harder and sleep became a luxury nobody could afford. You snooze, you lose was the name of the game. And it was no wonder that accident rates soared in the king crab fishery. Weather was a wild card that everybody had to play if they wanted to make it pay. The seasons were set at the end of the summer and by mid-October, the traditional start of the Bering Sea red king crab season, the barometer in the seas could rise and fall with diabolical whimsy. Riding out a storm at anchor often meant losing a trip, and for those gutsy enough or foolish enough to brave the wrath of an Aleutian low, it was often an all-or-nothing gamble. If you beat the weather, you could claim the best grounds and fish a nasty but uncluttered ocean. And if you were lucky, you could boat another load while the rest of the fleet was hiding behind some island. On the other hand, if the weather won out, you could go straight to the bottom of the Bering Sea, where the crabs would dine on you instead of you dining on them. Such were the options for Jimmy McManus and the crew of the American Beauty when something truly extraordinary happened during the king crab season of 1978. The fishery had already opened, and the fleet was fishing as fast as it could when Mother Nature generated a monster low, the likes of which no one had ever seen before. Recognizing a recipe for disaster, the Coast Guard and the Alaska Department of Fish and Game couldn't ignore their collective responsibility for the safety of the fleet, so they stepped in to ease the pressure on vessel owners by extending the season and allowing the fleet to take cover without sacrificing their fishing opportunities. Now that no one had to fish, the Coast Guard and Fish and Game assumed that skippers would exercise good judgment and take cover. The vast majority of the fleet anchored up wherever they could, and skippers worried about dragging their anchors as they listened to the winds screaming in the rigging. However, the authorities did not formally close the fishery, and there were some skippers who still heard the king crab calling and wondered if they shouldn't just sneak out of the bay and go take a look. We were anchored up behind Amac Island in the shelter of a very strong wind, McManus recalled. It was blowing over a hundred, and the wind was so strong that you could actually hear pebbles hit the front of the wheelhouse. They were being blown off the beach, and we were about a quarter mile offshore. It sounded like little shotgun pellets, 
and a fair amount of the fleet was there anchored up. Peggy Dyson, WBH-29, came on the radio with her scheduled evening weather forecast. She said that this was the strongest low ever recorded in Alaska history. And because of the strength of the winds, they would be extending the king crab fishery by three or four days, which was unheard of at the time. We heard that and Gunleif Locklingholm, the skipper, sat there for a minute or two and said, well, we're sitting on a boatload of crab here. We could actually make it in and get back out and probably go through the gear and get another load of crab. I think we should haul the pick. My heart went down to my belt line. I was the engineer. I cranked up the main engine, and I remember thinking to myself, this is going to be bad. But I lit her off and went up on the bow. Me and this Norwegian fella literally had to crawl out there because the wind was blowing so hard. I remember there were other people on the radio asking us, what are you guys doing? Are you dragging anchor? Are you gonna move up closer to the beach? No, we're going to jog into town. Are you crazy? Well, I thought we were, but we finally pulled the anchor and that took quite a while, pulling the surge buoys off and actually feeling the little pebbles smack you. But we hauled the anchor up and at first it was all going pretty well. We were jogging toward Dutch Harbor, which was probably 130 miles away. We got out about four or five hours and Shell, another Norwegian guy, was on watch. He came down to wake me up for my watch. So I'd gotten up and I was walking up the wheelhouse steps. I was about halfway up when the boat dropped and it dropped and it got eerily quiet and it dropped. And I thought, my gosh, how far is this thing gonna drop? The next thing was an extremely loud explosion and green water was coming at me and pushing me down the stairs backwards into the galley. I remember hanging on to one of the pipes that holds up the galley table and thinking, this is a lot of water. This is serious. I went back upstairs and I thought for sure that Chell would either be gone, blown out the wheelhouse door, or dead in the wheelhouse. This was bad. When I got up there, there was still a lot of water in the wheelhouse, and it felt like we took on more water from a second wave, but not as bad as the first one. Still, there was a fair amount of water sloshing back and forth in the wheelhouse. Chell was standing on the rung of the captain's chair with his back against the starboard side window in disbelief. He'd seen the wave coming, ducked below the console, and then jumped up on the rung and stayed there. The wheelhouse door behind him was blown open. The spinner window that had been in front of him, a solid, heavy, brass-ringed centerpiece window that spun to keep the ice off, was blown backwards into the aft bulkhead of the wheelhouse. And when I got there, it was embedded in that formica. There was also an alarm panel there with red lights on it, and the window was stuck in that bulkhead. The whole wheelhouse was bent into a completely different shape. The radar was laying at my feet. You could hear electricity zapping and shorting around here and there, and the wind inside the wheelhouse was so loud you had to yell to communicate. Gunliff came out of his stateroom, and I remember asking him, Well, are you happy now? And boy, he was pissed. Chell, thank God, was okay, but the damage was severe. The wheelhouse appeared to be knocked in about two feet toward us. The wooden console inside the pilot house had been knocked back a fair amount farther than that. The instruments on it were a mess. 
At first, the radar that had been bolted to it was laying on the floor in the water. But the water sloshed back and forth a few times and then disappeared out the door or down into the galley. All of the communication systems that were on the wheelhouse ceiling, the radio, the Loran, the CB, the loud hailer, were all gone. There was nothing left on the ceiling. All the electronics up there were gone. They had blown out the door. The steering autopilot was gone. The jogstick was gone. That whole starboard side was history. So it's amazing that Chell lived through it. We were able to steer and turn the boat around with the emergency wheel. And we still had control of the engine RPM, so we were able to slow the boat and turn it around and put the sea on the stern for a very short period of time. It was not the safest thing to do to have that kind of sea directly on your stern, but we had to make repairs. We assessed it really quickly at the time. The railing on top of the boat, the buoys that were on top of the railing, and all the antennas that were on top of the boat were gone as well. The steel visor on top of the house, the baseball brim as we called it, was peeled straight back. It used to be level, but it was bent back past 90 degrees. So we figured the wave went right over the top of the boat. We blew a buoy ball up in each of the window frames and stuffed rags alongside of them and that seemed to hold and it held all the way in. Then we picked up the radar that was on the floor, the backup radar, and we put it on a five gallon bucket. To hold it in place, we tied a piece of twine off between the hydraulic oil fill for the steering and the windshield wiper knob. Then we turned it on and it worked. To this day, we do not know why that radar worked because it was part of all that shorting out and you'd never think that once the salt water got inside it would ever work again. But it was an old deco radar and it did. So we jogged in toward the beach and after several hours of jogging, we got over close to the beach and saw crab lights over there. We didn't really have any way to communicate with them yet, but we patched an emergency radio together that was in the captain's stateroom and we got that going. As we got closer to that light, we figured out who it was, and lo and behold, it was Bart Eaton, who was jogging into Dutch with the same idea, to offload, head back out, and catch another load. We worked our way across Unimac Pass. None of us had any experience hand-steering the boat, so like Leif said, we were pointed toward the Pribilofs one minute and Unimac Pass the next, which is about a 90-degree swing. But we got in. We unloaded the crab with very little dead loss, if any. Then we got a hold of the electronics folks and put a couple of instruments back in the wheelhouse. We left the bent steel of the wheelhouse the way it was, and we steel-banded the wooden console to the wheelhouse just to make it more stable. We knew these were just temporary repairs, but we only had one more trip. Obviously, we'd have to go to Seattle after that, but we found a buddy with a spare wheelhouse window and we were able to jimmy that into place. We covered the other broken one with plywood, which made it a little difficult to see out, but we went back out fishing, and there was another load of crab in the gear. The value of that load, I think, was about $300,000, and that just about paid for building the new wheelhouse and raising the bow up back at Marco. Bart Eaton remembers that storm, too. He was aboard his own crabber, the Amatuli, and he confirmed what McManus said about the strength of the low. If I remember right, we were told by the weather station and Peggy about two or three times that day. They said, 
Now this is no bullshit. Listen up. This is the lowest low ever recorded. It was a dandy. As for pilot house windows blowing out, that never happened on Eaton's boat, but he was well aware of the danger. My first trip out to the Aleutians, there was a guy who went through Akatan Pass. We were right behind him going through the pass. It was a wooden tuna saner that had been converted for crabbing. A lot of boats were like that in those days. The window blew in and slit his throat. We hope that you enjoyed Chapter 7, all about Jimmy McManus. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you can be the first to know when our next episode, The Bountiful, A Lesson in Shipyard Management, is released on Wednesday, January 29th. We appreciate you joining us, and we hope that this adventure inspires you to catch your own deck load of dreams.